you know, one of the things on the journey over the last 10 years of trying to figure out what makes people successful, what do purpose-driven people who really live a meaningful life have in common, what is it about those companies that work well versus those that don't. Uh, one thing that was fascinating to see was that those that really seem to be extremely successful, that they have something in common, which is that they, they intuitively cultivate serendipity. They intuitively see something the unexpected, connect the dots and do something with it, turn it into positive outcomes. This is Swarfcast. I'm Noah Graf. Our guest on today's show is Christian Bush, author of the new book, The Serendipity Mindset, The Art and Science of Finding Good Luck. Have you ever noticed how certain people always seem to get lucky breaks? According to Christian, these lucky people have a skill for recognizing luck when it materializes. In his book, he guides readers on how they can create luck, recognize it when it appears, and then turn it into positive outcomes. Today's podcast is brought to you by Graf Pinkert. Looking for a screw machine, rotary transfer machine, or CNC machine? Graf Pinkert's got you covered. When you're buying any used machine, you're taking a risk. So it's important to buy from someone who knows their stuff and who is going to give you straight information about what you're buying. Graf Pinkert is a family-owned firm that's been dedicated to selling great machine tools to the turn parts industry for 75 years. It specializes in the top multi-spindle brands, including Index, Schutte, Gildemeister, Tornos, ZPS, Acme, and Wickman. They also sell a variety of other types of used equipment, such as CNC Swiss, CNC turning centers, and parts washers. Machine tools are complicated. If you're going to buy one, you should go to people who are knowledgeable and committed to the industry. Learn more at www.graphpinkert.com. That's www.graffpinkert.com. About a month ago, I heard Christian interviewed on another podcast. And I was so fascinated, I started listening to his book about serendipity. My job as a machinery dealer revolves around serendipity. Opportunities for machines always pop up when we're not expecting them. It's one of the most interesting parts of the work. But I'm seeking other serendipity in my life. I'm looking for inspiration for new creative projects and opportunities to bring more purpose into my life. My hope is that the principles that Christian teaches will make my life more interesting and meaningful and successful. So I was super excited when he agreed to do this interview. I am honored to have Christian Bush, PhD, author of the new book, The Serendipity Mindset. The Art and Science of Creating Good Luck. So let's just start with the basics. Tell me how you define serendipity and how it differs from, from luck. Yeah, and thanks so much for having me. Delighted to be here and, and to quote-unquote meet everyone here. 
it's really interesting because, you know, one of the things on the journey over the last 10 years of trying to figure out what makes people successful, what do purpose-driven people who really live a meaningful life have in common, what is it about those companies that work well versus those that don't. Uh, one thing that was fascinating to see was that those that really seem to be extremely successful, that they have something in common, which is that they, they intuitively cultivate serendipity. They intuitively see something the unexpected, connect the dots and do something with it, turn it into positive outcomes. And so um, the, the idea here really is that it's about smart luck. It's not about the, the dumb luck, you know, the blind luck that's about being born into a good family or things like this. I mean, as, as, as far as I know, we can't really choose that part. But, but what we can choose is, is how much smart luck we create. We have different starting positions in life, of course, but in, in almost every situation, we can somehow create some kind of smart luck. Um, and, and that's really about seeing something the unexpected and then connecting the dots and, and turning that into positive outcomes. So give an example. Uh, you know, if you have erratic hand movements like I do, you spill coffee all the time. And so imagine you're in a coffee shop and you accidentally spill coffee over someone. And, uh, you know, now you have two options, right? Option number one is you just say, oh, I'm so sorry. Here's a napkin. You walk outside and you think, ah, what could have happened had I spoken with a person? Um, maybe you sense some kind of connection. Option number two is you sense that kind of connection. You're like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. You start a conversation and that person turns out to become your co-founder, the love of your life, the next investor, whatever it is. And so it's really that our reaction to the unexpected, uh, that, that really kind of in a way shapes a lot of our life. We cannot always choose that situation, but always our response to it. And that's that's how you met uh, an ex-girlfriend, correct? And actually, my my now wife as well. Um, it's it's been you know serendipitously over a dinner, and now we reconnected after twelve years. And serendipity sometimes has a long incubation time, right? You might have the seed twelve years ago, and then it turns out after twelve years that that actually there is something. And yeah, so so actually, my life has been mostly both in the love, but also in, in professionally, um, it's been around serendipity. Well. I guess we're skipping around, but since we're talking about love, isn't finding love, finding that perfect mate, is that just inherently serendipitous? Well, it's fascinating, isn't it? Because so many times when you think about it, we were probably not looking for that particular person. And then at some point, to your point, right, it's, it's a lot of times coincidental that we meet someone, send some kind of connection, develop a relationship out of it. And, and that's the interesting thing, right, that at the end of the day, when you build a muscle for the unexpected, even if you don't know who it could be, what it could be, you're setting yourself up for those kind of situations. So I think that's, you know, without, I'm not a, I'm not an expert on love, but. Well, I mean, I met my wife on OkCupid. Okay. <laughs> it's, it's very linear. You know, I came up with a cheesy line in the chat and then we went out and we kind of took it slow at first. And then before long, I knew she was the one and she knew I was the one. Is that serendipity? I mean, we, we were both on at the same time. What is that? How would you define that? That's not good enough to be serendipity. It's not spilling coffee on somebody. And Well, look, I think one of the interesting things around serendipity is that it's a lot about putting yourself out there, right? It's a lot about saying what you had to do was you had to actually put your profile somewhere. You had to allow yourself to actually connect with someone and so on. And so while I don't know exactly how, how your love story, which, which seems wonderful, by the way, uh, emerged, 
um, and it sounds like you're very happy in it. In a way, always also, of course, depends on when we look at it. And it, it sounds like it, it it played out really well in the in the long run. Um, it's it's um, it's it, it's something where um, you know at the end of the day, I'm a big fan, and we'll probably talk more about this. But it's in our love life and our professional life setting hooks, right? This idea of how do we put ourselves out there in a way where other people can connect the dots with and, and say, oh my god, like such a coincidence, this person is interested in something I didn't even know people are interested in other than me, right? And so these kind of things where maybe you did a couple of things that made it more likely that that kind of connection would happen. Um, and I think that's what we see a lot in, in serendipity that people like, you know, cast a couple of hooks, usually intuitively, right? A lot of us don't do it like consciously, but but by doing that, it makes it more likely. Right. And do you feel like trying to just do the random thing is a method? Like, for instance, I thought, you know, not to sell myself short, but, you know, I emailed you out of the blue and I said, Hey, I wrote this blog about serendipity. I'm reading the book. I think it's really cool. I have this podcast. You want to be on it. And then in a few days, you were like, yeah, sure. Like, I mean, literally like the next day, you were like, I'll, I'll, I'll be on it. And, um, and here we are. So is this the sort of behavior that leads to serendipitous things? Is this just sort of an instinctual thing for you? Or is this, are you just like a really, uh, you just could tell it was just an awesome podcast. And so you had to respond. Probably a mixture of both. I mean, in the sense that, so I'm a big fan of these kind of serendipity bombs, right? Where you say, let's just send speculative messages to people, right? If you do that 20 times, right? like 18 of them might not get back, but you don't need 18, right? Or you don't need 20, right? You just want to have like the one or two people out of out of those that do it. And if you have like, you know, you seem like someone who reads like and and, and really thinks a lot. And so, so that's the kind of thing where, you know, I think a lot of people who in a way then reach out to others in speculative messages, I think I'm always surprised how often people actually respond. And, and in this case as well, right? It's this kind of thing where I think in your case, it sounds just like such a, interesting take that you have on the world and so it's 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 wonderful to do that and again in, in this case right is really connecting the dots to i was thinking well look like at the end of the day this is an audience i haven't connected enough with and i think it would be great to talk about serendipity also in, in those contexts yeah i mean they're business people you know they're they're business people they're people that work in shops they're engineers you probably have connected with them i don't know why what who do you think that you are connecting more with? Uh, you're, you're, you're thinking academics or? It's a great question because I think, um, to your point, right? I, and that's one of the things I've enjoyed so much since the book has been out that I feel there's people from the most unexpected of places I've been connecting with. You know, I would, for example, never have thought that psychologists would be so interested in it because they are like, oh my God, I can use this for my patients because, you know, in a world full of anxiety, this might be a way to decrease anxiety. Or I had an autistic, like the mother of an autistic child reach out and say, oh, like I have now a way to reconnect with my child in a meaningful way. I, I didn't know what to do after COVID. And so I think the typical audiences, you know, were just like a lot probably more like, you know, the, the managerial, you know, let's lead a team and create a culture for, for serendipity or, you know, hey, like I want to increase my well-being, like this is a way to increase my well-being. But I think the kind of, um, you know, maybe more data science or engineering or like, you know, in a way the kind of what, what I would usually consider probably the hard sciences or the hard, uh, the, 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 the kind of more mathematical approach types. That's actually something I've, I've enjoyed so much uh, connecting with because I feel intuitively a lot of people connect the dots in those areas in, in such smart ways. And so I'm, I'm, I'm excited to, to veer more into that. 
Okay, let's take it a little back. I'm sure you've told this story like hundreds of times and you tell it in the book, but I think it's, it's really important. Talk about how you came about with this idea, why you're writing this book, sort of the germ of the idea started when you thought back to a car accident. Yeah, so, you know, I when I was younger, essentially, Imagine this kind of teenager who's trying to test any boundary that might be out there. And where where did you grow up? In Germany? In Heidelberg. In Heidelberg, uh, Germany. Yeah, where a very kind of philosophical, romantic city. Um, slightly boring when you're growing up, but but now I do appreciate it for for its its kind of beautiful romantic uh, notions. Um, but but I grew up there. I was you know trying to push every boundaries. I was kicked out of school. I had to repeat a year. In a way, the nightmare for a parent, right? And and I transferred this into my driving style. Um, probably held the unofficial world records of how many bins you can knock off on your way to school. <laughs> um, and then one day I wasn't lucky anymore and, and smashed into four parked cars and, and all of them are completely destroyed, including my own. And and you know it, it stuck with me. You know when you have this one sentence or some something that just sticks with you. And and in my case, there was really this policeman who came to the scene and and who said, "Oh my God, he's still alive." And so this idea that I was supposed to be dead that just kind of in my mind was very poignant. And, and I asked myself all these weird questions, you know, if I had died, was it all worth it? Who would have come to my funeral and, and so on? And I realized at that point, most of these answers were quite depressing. And so it put me on this intense search for meaning. And I started reading this amazing book that's highly recommended, um, which is Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, which is all about that idea that, you know, in the toughest of circumstances, you still have choice. What's fascinating about his story is he is in a concentration camp and he says this by definition is probably one of the most meaningless situations you can be in. Like there's there's no, you know, even the most positive people, when you're in a situation where you think that you will most probably die tomorrow, that's just not like there's just nothing you can do in order to have more hope usually, right? But he says, you know what, I can still find some kind of meaning. And so every day, for example, he would still talk with someone else, make them feel better. And by by knowing that he would wake up tomorrow and could still make someone else feel better, he now had a small meaning in the moment, even if the whole situation itself was meaningless. And so I think to me, that was such a beautiful, again, now I had COVID last year, like a severe form, and it was like, really, it felt like just a meaningless, like, thing, right? And I, I almost died of it. I was alone at home. Like, it was just like a really, like, crappy situation. And when you're in that kind of situation, Victor Frankl's just the book where you're like, okay, great. Let me see if there's something in here that could be meaningful. And like, in my case, it opened me up to a new relationship. It opened me up to, now we talked about it earlier, like, the, the woman now... Uh, who's my wife and who I will have a baby with, like we got together after that period because I actually said, look, like maybe there's, I have to focus more on those questions. Maybe I have to actually not only be out there and like, you know, whatever, but, and, and, and really kind of inspire and do X, Y, Z, but maybe I also have to really think more about how to create a home. And, and so it, it really kind of made me reformulate what is a meaningful life at this stage in my life? And, you know, that is kind of what comes, I guess, from those deeper near-death experience type situations. And, and so, again, like rereading Viktor Frankl was, was a nice reminder of this. And, and to our point, right, so, so back in the days, it just put me on this intense search for meaning, saying, hey, okay, if I could have been killed now, next time, if I would face that situation again, what would make it worthwhile? If I would run in front of a car tomorrow, which might happen any day, what would make it worthwhile? And what I realized is what I enjoy doing the most is connecting people, connecting ideas, and somehow that spark that comes from these unexpected connections. And so I started out as community builder, 
um, and then you know build social enterprise enterprises and later on went into research um, and try to understand the patterns behind it. And we talked about this earlier. What I found most fascinating is that the most successful people seem to have something in common when looking at them around the world, from the, the slums in sub-Saharan Africa to the CEO of a MasterCard. What they seem to have in common is that they intuitively cultivate serendipity. And so my fascination really comes from what is the science-based framework for doing this? Because there's, you know, everyone has an anecdote about serendipity. Everyone has some kind of serendipity in their life. But, but the, the fascination was really to say, is there a pattern behind this that we can study? And can we learn from all the different sciences about what makes it actually something we can build a muscle for? Okay. In- interesting. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm going back to where we were before. I don't know if you read my blog, but I'm a machinery dealer. So I sell equipment to many of the people listening to this. And our business revolves around serendipity. You know, you accidentally were looking for one thing and you stumbled upon this. I know it in that respect. But you know, if I'm looking for serendipity in other ways, clearly, I'm listening to the book, I'm, I'm trying to go beyond that. So You mentioned in the book to keep a serendipity journal. I don't know if I'm doing it exactly the way you were prescribing it, but I just tried to start writing, you know, one serendipitous thing that happened every single day. And sometimes I feel like it's a stretch. I don't know. Sometimes I feel like I'm forcing it. Like maybe it was serendipity. Maybe it isn't. And maybe I guess is your point that if you can get something out of it, that's what really matters. Exactly. And, and that's the interesting thing. I mean, you know, in terms of the, the idea of the serendipity mindset, really, uh, the serendipity journal really is, is twofold. The one is really to say, let's become clearer about what we want or desire or, you know, feel that we want to attract in some way or the other. Right. And so that's really about saying, let's just write down a couple of interests we have at the moment. So if I'm running a corner store and I want to open a second corner store soon in XYZ area, then this is a core interest I have at this point. So now can I use every conversation I have to somehow seed this in to say, oh, by the way, Hey, I am about to open XYZ store, but now let's focus the conversation on something else. And so what we're doing here is we're trying to cast hooks then with those kind of different interests where we're not pitching people. We're not saying, I open a corner store and I want you to invest into this, or I open a corner store and I want a new supplier. We're just saying, let's put a couple of hooks out there that allow us to then have more of this happen. And so to give an example, a wonderful friend of mine, Ollie Barrett in London, he's this, this fantastic entrepreneur. If you would ask him, the what do you do question, right, which we get asked all the time, he would say something like, well, I'm a technology entrepreneur, recently started reading to the philosophy of science, but what I'm really excited about is playing the piano. And so what he's doing here is he's casting three hooks where you could be like, oh my God, such a coincidence. I recently started hosting piano matinees. You should stop by. Oh my God, such a coincidence. My sister is teaching the philosophy of science in this and this high school. You should give a guest lecture. Whatever it is, like for every interest we have, we can use every interaction to see that in a very non kind of, um, you know, like non-obvious way, but in a way that allows others to say, oh, that is interesting. And, and, and that's really something which which I find fascinating because that's really to your point. We're not forcing it. We're not pushing it on someone and say, you have to take this pitch and run with it. But we're just saying, you know what? Maybe we can make the conversation with the uncle whom we really didn't want to call a bit more interesting by just bringing in a couple of these things and just see what flies.
sales. And to your point earlier, right, that is at the core of good business. Like a good salesperson will consistently bring in other hooks, right? They will say, oh, you're interested in this item. This is so interesting because this person who bought this last time, it was so interesting. They they did this with this and they did this. And then the customer might be, oh my God, interesting. I didn't even know I can use it this way. You know, the point here is that good salespeople in a way build that into every conversation. But I think by building a muscle for this, we do that then more consciously as well, then becomes part of, of who we are. The second piece, I think what you did, and that's really the second idea of it, is, is really interesting, right? Because the point here is to say, identifying what holds us back from having more serendipity, but also identifying what we could do more. So let's say, for example, you write down for a month, these are the situations where I had serendipity happen. So this is where I had three customers and by setting a couple of hooks, um, they bought XYZ things more serendipitously because they realized, oh, they can really surprise their partner by bringing them the other item, whatever it is, doesn't matter. Writing those things down that really worked and then writing down the things that didn't work. Maybe we were in a meeting and a random idea came up, but we didn't voice it because we felt our inner imposter was coming out or we felt crazy in the situation, whatever it is. And then we also write down these things where serendipity could have happened, like in this coffee shop example, right? Where we know something could have happened, but it didn't because we didn't act on it. And then really understanding for both the good and the bad, what is the pattern behind it? When I don't act on these things, is it my inner imposter? Let's work on it. Is it the fear of rejection? Let's work on it. Whatever it is, we can work on the deeper psychological things. And I think that's what I'm most excited about to say, Yes, let's work on the practices, but also let's work on what is really holding us back here psychologically. Right, right. And they're both challenging. Absolutely. Coming up with the hooks and actually doing it as well as then doing the work after you've hopefully learned what to do. One thing I I really enjoyed in the book, you talk about getting out of your paradigm, you know, getting out of your normal patterns, your normal daily activities, and you bring up Uh, the Seinfeld episode where George decides everything he's going to do is the opposite and all these fantastic things start happening to him. Can you talk a little bit about that, about changing it up? It's interesting because the deeper bias behind that is really functional fixedness, right? That in a way, a lot of times we have this idea of is the hammer nail problem, right? Like, when you, when, you, when you have a hammer, then you will always um, think when you have a nail, oh, I need a hammer to get the nail into the wall, right? Versus like someone who never saw a hammer will always think about a heavy object they can use to get the, the nail into the thing. So their, their, their vision is much broader because they don't have a specific solution for something. And that's really what's behind it, that the more expertise we have in an area, the more experience we have in an area, the more narrow there will be our problem-solving approaches because we've done it and we know what works, right? That's why kids sometimes seem to have more creativity, right? Because they, they're not held back by stupid conventions. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, I just had a conversation earlier today, actually, where um, a businessman was talking about how he brings in his 18-year-old kid into the company meetings to ask the quote-unquote naive questions, right? Because, like, if you can't explain it to an 18-year-old, right, your business model or whatever you're trying to sell, then you probably haven't understood it yourself, right? So it's really this kind of thing of saying, um, let's bring in those people who don't have this function fixedness because everyone gets, in a way, grows to your point, into it. Um, that's actually why, you know, I'm super fascinated by these questions, why the most radical innovations usually come from developing countries, right? You will see that um, the most exciting healthcare innovations 
um, things like mobile banking, they will come from Kenya, from India, because people don't have to unlearn. Like if you don't have an ATM in your village, you don't think about how to improve your ATM machine, right? You think about how can I use my phone to get money from A to B. And so you don't have that functional fixedness. And to your point, right? Kids don't have that either because they don't know how exactly XYZ works. So they don't think in that particular constrained way. And so that's really what it's all about to say, how do we break out of our functional fixedness in a way that is not about changing everything up and changing who we are and everything else, but in a more kind of nudging way to say, what is one behavioral shift I can do? And that's why I'm such a big fan of hooks and nudges and, and so on, because it's not about saying you have to completely change everything. It's about saying, how can I do one thing differently every day that leads to a couple of more customers, a couple of more innovative things, whatever it is, without like, you know, making me feel, oh my God, there's even more anxiety in my life now. Yeah. Do you think that sometimes you can try too hard, like you're trying to meet the person you want to spend your life with, or you think this meeting is going to be my big break where I'm going to find this job or get this deal. And you get your hopes up that this thing is going to work out and the stars are going to align. Is there something about like just relaxing and not trying as hard to get this serendipity? I mean, I want to get the serendipity. I want to put these bombs out and put these hooks out and do all these exercises. But at the same time, do you think you need to sit back and chill for a second? Do you think it's BS when people say, oh, you're going to meet your mate just when you're not expecting it? Just when you're not looking for it? You no, know, it's interesting. So, <laughs> so picture the situation. Let's say the person who could be with you is the person you could run into in the gym, right? Let's say you have your gym, you always go there, and, and, and one day that one person is there, and let's say you are there, and you somehow bump into her for some kind of reason. Now, think about how the difference is between you having a really good day, you feel like you're really, you know, you're in good shape, you're in a kind of way where you feel you're you and you can be really charming and, and really who you are versus like the, the other you, which might be the kind of, you didn't really sleep well, you have a hangover, you're in a really bad mood, you're wearing the shirt you've been wearing for two weeks and, and that kind of thing, right? And so now these kind of situations where you meet her and depending on that kind of energy you will have in that moment, depending on the question you ask in the moment, whatever it is, the situation now can go two ways, right? And the point here is that in a way, the, the way of how you quote unquote prepared for the unexpected can actually shape a lot of what happens next, right? And so the point is we always focus on let's work out to have a better body or a better whatever, whatever. But essentially the point here is to say, let's work out to be better prepared for when the unexpected happens. So to make accidents more meaningful. And the way we do that is to really train ourselves to say, I have something. If if I would run into the person, maybe, you know, if I always spill coffee, that's the point, right? So in the Serendipity Journal, if we write down... Sounds like you're kind of clumsy. I am completely clumsy, absolutely. And clumsiness can be in our favor, actually. That's the point that, like, if we notice those situations happen to us all the time, but usually we feel really bad about it, well, then how can we have this one sentence that just saves the situation and actually turns the situation around? And, and that is what it's all about. It's not saying I bet everything on one pitch or I bet everything on this one meeting in one coffee shop. It's actually the exact opposite. It's saying step back and say every meeting every meeting actually could be your big meeting because, you know, I always love that example of this lady in, in England. She just graduated, right? And she had for the student newspaper or something, she was interviewing the biggest champion ever in boxing and, and the, at that time. And she was just in, like interviewing out of interest. 
And he liked her so much that she was, he was like, you know what? You should become my PR person. She had no experience in PR. She had no idea about whatever, but that was her break to get into that industry and like do something really exciting there. The point here is that it's those kind of extremely unexpected situations where she didn't have any expectation about that really helped her do it. Why? Because of her attitude in that because the, the way she interacted and so on. So the point here is a lot of times it is those unexpected situations where we don't put too much pressure on it um, that lead us to things. But again, she was well prepared because she in a way intuitively had a mindset that allowed her to do that. And that's really what I want to do with this book to say, hey, at the end of the day, we all can develop an approach that helps us to whatever situation we're in. There might always be a bit of serendipity in there, even if we might not see it at this point. Um, and, you know, if you talk about, we talked earlier about those people who tend to always have serendipity, the point is they really reframe their life towards it. I mean, if you want, we can talk about that lucky-unlucky um, experiment. But to me, that's always the pointer to, wow, the way you look at the world is almost partly sometimes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Right, right. I mean, you uh, you one thing I thought was interesting where you, you said uh, you have a bank robbery and a few people get wounded in it. And one person complains that they got shot and the other person says, oh, man, I got out alive. That really goes to what we're going for. I, another thing I like, I like your pop cultural references in the book. My wife and I are a big fan of the show Suits. And, uh, you know, you're talking about connecting the dots, connecting all these different little things that are going on and how you can use this negative and reverse it. And because on Suits, for anybody that, hasn't seen it. It's just like they're they're trying to figure out how to win a case and and then they're having a conversation with somebody and somebody says something totally unrelated and then they go aha and they race somewhere and it's well and that's exactly right that's at the core of it to say once we open our eyes to the idea that in every situation there could be a solution to our problem we actually we, we start seeing those dots right and i think that's the key thing and and maybe like what you said earlier right like a related experiment to what you said earlier is really about that idea that once we start believing the good thing can happen it starts happening more often because we open our eyes to it so to give you that experiment it was essentially a psychologist who said, let's take people who self-identify as unlucky, you know, who say bad things always happen to me. I'm always an accident. So the kind of person who would say in the bank robbery, oh, my God, like it's so unfair that I was the one being shot. Right. Versus the lucky person who would be the one who said, oh, my God, I'm so lucky that I got out of here. Um, and, and that person would say, I usually have lucky good things happen in my life. And so they tell, you know, two of, of those people walk down the street go into a coffee shop, order a coffee and sit down, and then we'll have our interview. What they don't tell them is that there's hidden cameras across the street and inside the coffee shop. There's a five pound note, so money in front of the door of the coffee shop. And inside the coffee shop, there's this one empty chair next to this extremely successful businessman who can make big ideas happen. Now, the lucky person walks down the street, sees the five pound note, picks it up, goes inside the shop, orders the coffee, sits next to the businessman, has a nice conversation, they exchange business cards, potentially an opportunity coming out of it. We don't know that part. The unlucky person walks down the street, steps over the five pound note, so doesn't see it, goes inside, orders the coffee, sits next to the businessman, ignores the businessman, 
that's it. At the end of the day, they ask both people, so how was your day today? And so the quote unquote um, lucky person says, it was amazing. I found money in the street, made new friends and you know, potential opportunity coming out of it. The unlucky person just says, well, nothing really happened. And that's really the difference, right? That at the end of the day, there's all these different things. I talked with someone earlier um, a couple of, of weeks ago about how he got his podcast idea from walking down another street than usual, seeing an old book in a bookstore and thinking, oh my God, people haven't talked about this for ages. I should do a podcast about this. And so he saw something in the unexpected and connected the dots because he actually was having an open mind versus always going the same street to our problem earlier, right? That we are used to these routines, same street, no new ideas. And so the point here really is to say, A, once we open our mind and our eyes to something, it tends to happen more often which is really at the core of this serendipity journal. But also more importantly, once we actually realize that a lot of what happens in the world, we can influence in some way in the way of how we tweak our mind, it's just fascinating. And that's really the Viktor Frankl idea that we cannot always uh, you know, influence the situation, but we can always influence our response to it. And that's really where we can make accidents more meaningful, but also create more meaningful accidents. And that's where it gets really exciting. Uh, just, just a few other questions. What's the most, one of the most interesting serendipitous moments that's happened to you recently? The COVID, the COVID test, or I mean, the getting COVID and reading Viktor Frankl. Well, I mean, the most recent one was, you know, re-meeting. Uh, so essentially, I, I had a friend for, you know, 12 years and we uh, serendipitously re-met last summer. Um, we you know, realize, oh my God, there is actually love potential. Um, we're about to get married. We are about to have our first child. And, um, you know, that was literally coming out of, we talked about it earlier. I had COVID last year. It felt like an extremely meaningless period. Um, but one thing it did was that it essentially made me realize, oh, wow, I was stuck in this house alone. You know, I could have died. Um, wow, I didn't really prioritize home. I didn't really prioritize my personal life enough to really be open-minded enough to really develop a proper relationship. And so it was fascinating to see how that kind of reframing in a way allowed that serendipity to happen. And so um, that, that, you know, I'm extremely grateful for that period that now led me to, you know, a wonderful partner and, and a wonderful, hopefully a wonderful child. We don't know that yet, but I assume it will be hopefully. Um, uh, <laughs> what, when you hear the word happiness, what do you think of? It's a great question. I've always had a very ambivalent relationship to it in the sense that I think as soon as we focus on happiness, that's when we get unhappy, right? Because we're kind of, we're, we're mistaking that happiness is not an outcome towards something or happiness is not something that we can achieve. It's more like a process of essentially discovering. And the reason why I have such an ambivalent relationship to it is that I feel the people I've encountered in my life who are most purpose-driven, who live the most meaningful lives, a lot of times that's based on discomfort, right? A lot of times that's based on, oh, there's a particular problem I need to solve. Like imagine this researcher in the lab who's like, oh my God, I want to cure cancer and I have to figure this out. And this person won't sleep for 10 nights. They won't, you know, and so they won't necessarily be happy or content in that moment, but they will feel a lot of meaning in that moment. And so I've always seen that kind of like as meaningfulness and happiness, not necessarily always being that aligned. And, and, you know, I've seen very content people. I mean, think about the monk who's sitting, you know, in the, but, but that monk might not necessarily do the most meaningful work then on that journey. And so it's kind of really those questions of meaningfulness versus happiness a lot of times I've, I've been fascinated by. Okay. So that's... What did you think about when you asked the question? I, I, I feel like you had a thought behind that question. That, no, that, that I mean, triggered. maybe it's a question I often ask people in the interview. It's probably similar with me. I'm trying to figure out 
what's the most important thing? What means more? How should I be looking at things in my life? I don't know. Maybe it's a negative side of me wanting to see how other people feel about it. Well, you know, it's, it reminds me of this beautiful sentence. Discomfort is almost the admission to a meaningful life, right? In a way that I think, look, if you wouldn't be as thoughtful as you are and, and, and kind of asking, you know, like difficult questions and you would just kind of be in your country house somewhere and, and just kind of in a way have a content life, it might not be necessarily the most meaningful life when you're on your deathbed, right? Where you would say, oh my God, I wished I had reconnected with people who were not here or I wished X, Y, Z. And so the point being that I've always found it super, super interesting to think about it in terms of deathbed regrets. Like there's this beautiful um, um, study they did with nurses and they asked them, so what do people tell you when they're close to death? And, you know, nobody ever said, I wish they had more cars in the garage, right? Um, people usually say, I wish they had fostered my relationships more with close friends. I wish they had done more things that felt meaningful rather than just, you know, like um, what other people told me and so on. And so I think it's, it's really this idea that, that at the end of the day, that journey of figuring it out, that's why I'm such a big fan of Viktor Frankl. I don't feel that anyone has figured this out. I don't think that anyone has figured anything out. By the way, that's, I feel, one of the biggest messages also in, in, in our work. So that, Viktor Frankl, Viktor Frankl didn't figure it out. <laughs> even Viktor Frankl didn't figure it out. You know, I feel most people are winging it all the time because the world is changing, right? So what can we actually know in the sense of we can aggregate experiences about particular things, we can know how to run a shop like properly and stuff like that. But when we will be on our deathbed, there will be things that we will say, oh my God, I didn't realize X, Y, Z. And I think that's the kind of questions, the closer we can get to that, to not having that regret later on, um, I think that's what makes a meaningful life to, to, to think about what is it that, that really makes me feel meaningfully engaged. And I think that's coming closer than to what brings meaning and happiness together, right? That I think we will be happier if we feel that we actually live a meaningful life, but it might mean pain and discomfort from time to time. So it might have unhappy periods in between. Well, that sounds profound enough to, <laughs> to finish on. Uh, do you have anything else that you want to say to the people of the world that is important? Doesn't even have to do with the book or whatever. Yeah, it's really about that serendipity is, is about potentiality, right? Serendipity is about what could be. And, and if we don't allow potentiality, if we don't allow new ideas, thinking a little bit different and so on, we, in a way, you know, we don't allow ourselves to have more than we could have in the sense of, you know, that's not only about client leads and other things, you know, there's a lot of tangible things, but I, you know, give an example, a colleague of mine in London, he's this kind of very esteemed professor type person. And I remember when I came to him with the first ideas for the book and so on, he was like, look, Christian, I really like you. I really like the, the ideas and so on, but I don't need it in my life. I have enough, like I have everything. I don't need anything. And so we made a deal and we said, you know what, why don't you try a couple of these things, you know, just ask slightly different questions, a bit more open-minded than the ones, not, I didn't say it that way, but uh, you know, less kind of like, what do you do type questions and more questions around, you know, what inspired you about X, Y, Z, or just something that opens up a little bit more the spectrum of potential answers and, and just do that for a couple of weeks and then let's reconnect. So we meet after a couple of weeks, he comes back and he's like, my God, Christian, I didn't know life can be so joyful. And, and, you know, to me, that was really the thing where I think a lot of times we have the assumption that we have. That's like the greatest compliment somebody could give you. That's amazing. And, and, you know, it was interesting because to your point, right, I think sometimes we think we have figured something out, right? We think, oh, I have figured out how to live life. I have figured out how to run my business. I have figured out X, Y, Z. But we can't know what else could be there if we don't allow it to be there. And, and that's really what I meant earlier also with this 
experiment that we need to understand that there is more out there than we think is out there. And if we open ourselves up to that, then that's when it can happen. And I think that's really what comes back to Viktor Frankl that, again, like especially when the unexpected happens, when COVID happens and things, we can't like like see that situations always, but but we can always choose our response. And that's when, you know, a brewery turns into a hand sanitizer company because yes, all the restaurants are not customers anymore, but maybe we can use the, the alcohol to use hand sanitizer. And, 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 you know, seeing that potentiality in it, I think that is when the real magic happens. And that's what, what serendipity is all about. From today's machining world, this is Swarfcast. If you like this podcast, please subscribe to the show on your favorite app and give us a five-star rating and a review. And don't forget to tell your friends about it. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and todaysmachiningworld.com to join our mailing list, read episode summaries, and watch extended interview videos. I'm Noah Graff. My occasional co-host is Lloyd Graff. Our managing editor is Ridgely Dunn. Our audio engineer is Patricio Garcia. For information on advertising or to submit an idea for a future podcast, follow the contact information at todaysmachiningworld.com. 